Before we begin, we'd like to invite you to a performance by Kimberly Bartosik titled I Hunger for You. Suspended in a stark yet mesmerizing world defined by light and its absence, I Hunger for You creates a space where internalized forces of faith pulse through dancers' bodies, which resiliently, tenderly, and violently confront one another. You can see this performance October 12th at the Schaefer Theater at Bates College in Lewiston, Maine. Tickets are on sale now. Visit batesdancefestival.org slash upcoming events. Stay tuned at the end of this podcast for information about our Gibney Winter Intensive, where you can take class with the artists featured in this podcast. Welcome to Inside Dance, a podcast that celebrates the Bates Dance Festival artists and teachers. I'm your host, Lindsay LaPointe. This episode features Onye Ozuzu, who was at the Bates Dance Festival teaching Technology of the Circle with Kudos Onikeku. Onye Ozuzu is a dance administrator, performing artist, choreographer, educator, and researcher, and currently Dean of the University of Florida's College of the Arts. Physically and choreographically, she is focused on the body as technology and negotiated the intersectionality between many movement forms, from tennis to ballet, West African dance to Hatha yoga, freestyle house to salsa, contemporary dance to Aikido. The interview you're about to hear was recorded in 2011. My name is Onye Ozuzu and I taught uh, West African dance for the young dancers and I've been teaching an Afro-modern, Afro-contemporary class for the professional program. I guess like a lot of dancers, I had that, I had the dream as a young child. Um, I didn't, um, like a lot of dancers, or maybe not, I, I, I didn't take classes young. I, I was raised in sports. I, was, I played tennis from the time I was five until I was about 17. Um, so I, I think I came into movement through, through tennis, really. Um, my father trained us, and we played almost daily all those years. <laughs> um, and, but as soon as I got a chance to have a dance experience, I did. Um, I, yeah, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I just didn't have an opportunity. So I started dancing with a, um, a high school like dance team. The health teacher was taking a modern dance class in town. This is down in South Florida, and she um, started teaching dances to a group of us that just wanted to do it. We had like a little club, after-school club or whatever. And we toured, down in South Florida, we toured the senior citizen circuit. So we would go to um, senior citizen centers, and they'd pull the tables out of the cafeteria and bring the wheelchairs around, and they'd make this round, and we would dance a lot of times on the linoleum, the cafeteria floor. And um, those were really powerful performative experiences. They were really euphoric, both for high school dancers and senior citizens at the same time. And I, I remember people coming afterwards and holding my hands and just squeezing them and squeezing them and sort of like drawing on my hands. And I remember um, really viscerally at that time, because afterwards, you know, you're kind of like, you feel like you're glowing and you've got this sort of like waves of energy coming off your body. And I remember feeling really palpably like they need this. This is good for them. Um, and so that's how I started. And, and um, 
I didn't take my a formal dance class until I was in college. I was at Florida State University. Um, not a dance major, but I took classes um, with, um, with uh, a woman named Nia Love, who was getting her master's degree at the time at Florida State University, and ended up very quickly um, getting into lots and lots and lots of performing. I also was in a dance company at Florida A&M University, which was a historically black college in Tallahassee, Florida, which across the railroad tracks from FSU, and I got into um, their orchestras dance. It was also a dance club, but they, um, like many um, HBCUs, had a dance club and they would bring in guest artists. So we would have sometimes up to 10 guest artists a year that were coming in for short residencies and setting works towards a concert that was produced once a year. So I got to work with a lot of black contemporary dance choreographers from very postmodern work to very jazz-oriented work to sort of like classic black dance like Horton, um, Ailey, DCD. We got had a lot of um, Dallas contemporary and Philodanko dancers came through there. Um, and then traditional West African dance, tap, you know, ballet. We, ha we had sort of the gamut. I, I knew that I wanted to do this, but I also knew I was very young and fresh and relatively untrained, although I'd, I'd been getting a lot of performance opportunity. I traveled with Nia to San Francisco for, uh, to do some emerging black choreographers work out in San Francisco, and I, I was doing a lot of performing, but I had very little training, really. And so I decided to go directly from undergrad into getting a master's degree, um, essentially just to take, be able to take class for two years and have um, studio space to make work. Um, I had gotten my, my actual degree in English literature um, with a minor in economics, and I was um, definitely being pushed to be a writer. Um, and so I had a sense of composition already. And so I feel like I became a choreographer, and I, I became a choreographer and a teacher and a performer kind of like simultaneously all at once. Um, but I was very interdisciplinary from the beginning because I was sort of hopping over, and I had, I had these skills from tennis in terms of um, understanding my body and knowing how to process and anal my father was an analytical mover like he broke down like the tennis swing how to serve like I was used to thinking of movement very technically and analytically mm -hmm. and I was also used to thinking of um, performance very compositionally in terms of writing composition mm -hmm. and so I feel like I kind of jumped laterally and applied those skills and Modern dance is a good home for that kind of thing. Yeah, and so my training um, at FSU was was Graham, some Graham. Although I I argued my way out of Graham in a, in about two years, <laughs> um, but and so I spent a lot of time under Linda Davis, who's a Limon-based um, uh, modern dancer, was m more grounded and weight-oriented, and I just my hips weren't ready for grandma for turns around the back on the floor. And so, um, and then we, we did ballet. I spent my, I did my three years at the bar there, but starting very, quite late. Um, and I continued to perform and train with Nia, and I continued to work with this dance company at Florida A&M, where I was getting sort of deeply involved in uh, an African-American sort of grassroots base. It was connected to the university, but started to spill out into the community. Um, community of people that were pr studying and practicing African, West African drum and dance traditions. So I became a drummer. Eventually when Nia left town, I sort of took over her classes and 
continued the tradition of teaching West African classes, and we traveled as a community and studied together and sort of collected steps. Um, and that was a huge part of my process. But I continued to think of myself as a contemporary dancer. I trained in traditional West African dance, and I continued to train in modern dance and ballet when um, possible. But I continued to think of myself in terms of making work as a modern dancer. And later on, I was, um, and I continued to be very interested in energy and West African dance with its sort of correlate um, connections into West African culture. A lot of the people that I was studying with were sort of like the black intelligentsia of this sort of college town. And many of them were delving into um, African-based philosophy systems and psychology systems and cultural technology systems and religious systems. And so um, a lot of those systems talked about drumming and dancing from an energetic and spiritual perspective that um, I thought was really interesting and fascinating. So I did my MFA research in dance and healing sort of cross-culturally um, and continued to be interested in energy work, which led me into Hatha Yoga, led me um, into studying Aikido um, and, and some Tai Chi and Qigong, although it, that still is, I'm still a baby, baby student in those forms. But I think I took sort of an essentialist view of modern dance. Like I think I kind of took to heart the, the idea that, you know, I think it was Twyla Tharp that said, you can, you get to define your own terms. You get to define what's important to you. And I think I just, I took that very literally. And so I, as I continued to study a lot of very traditional energy-based forms um, and to practice a lot of club dancing. I was a house dancer for 20, 25 years. I was a salsa dancer. Um, still am, still am. I still consider myself a club dancer, like a, a social dancer. Um, I like to say club dancer better than social dancer though, because it's, I don't know, it's more of my time, you know. Um, I continue to see these as research that contributed to my sensibility as a contemporary um, dance artist and technique teacher, choreographer and performer. Um, and I, I continue to think that values that I was learning on multiple levels, both physical, spatial, philosophical um, implications in terms of how bodies relate to each other in community, that these were all materials from which I could draw to create environments where I could explore um, movement from a contemporary artist's perspective. I, I haven't studied Tai Chi or Qigong deeply. I had um, experiences both with my Aikido sensei, um, Clifford Williams from um, Leaving Tiger Dojo in Fort Myers, Florida, and my um, Hatha Yoga instructor, whose name has escaped me, of course, as I'm like, I will remember my teachers. It'll come back to me in a moment. Um, where they would incorporate Qigong into um, their process of uh, getting their students to understand that what we were actually doing with all these physical techniques was trying to learn how to channel energy 
but I think that qi cultivation was a way to um, enhance what I experienced in those classes was an enhancing of the sensation of energy, uh, the, 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 the body's ability to sense electricity um, and become aware of it in order to go into these practices. Coming from West African dance, the drum, right, the, 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 the stimulation, the, the stimulation of the drum on your body and the, the sort of euphoric energy of the community together dancing in rhythm does that for you. So in the practice of the technique, energy levels are so elevated that everyone becomes aware of energy together. Um, but in yoga and Aikido, forms that were more quiet, didn't have the amplification of the drum, that I saw that there, there was this sort of useful tool that was being used to get people aware of energy and then you would go into, because like in Aikido you have all these very complicated holds that lead into, you know, and, and people can get sort of myopically focused on the physical technique and then forget that the physical technique is actually supposed to unlock an energy flow between the two people and people start to muscle it and be very sort of like, like um, physical about it which actually shuts down the flow of energy. And so I think I was just like, huh, interesting. What I was experiencing when I started teaching at, Florida, at not Florida State, at, at University of Colorado Boulder, I went from a situation where, where I was on the East Coast in Florida and most of my classes were very mixed. There were a lot of people who were coming from the African-American community where the idea of dancing to rhythm and dancing energetically um, and interacting energetically in a dance context was sort of culturally ingrained. I was coming into an environment where a lot of my students were ballet trained and they, were ju they just had a different orientation towards movement. It was more spatial, it was more distal, and it was more formal and, stru and structural. Um, and so I needed something to, I needed something to create a bridge. Um, I, was also rare, I, I was also incredibly inspired by my martial training in general. Um, I, liked, I liked the juxtaposition. I liked the fact that it was, that it was different, that it, it, it was a different approach to it. it, was, it I like the fact that it wasn't so euphoric. It was a little bit more scientific. Um, I also liked the fact that it had to do with sort of a conscious and intentional direction of energy for a very particular purpose. I think there was something in my sports background that, that I, I missed the practicality of like trying to get the ball over the net to a particular spot. Dance has such... Um, you can just get caught up in what other people think about what you look like. It, I mean, and even though I came to dance late, it was still um, there. That was, that was, the danger of that was palpable. The emotional sort of danger of that, of the gray area. And so there was something very refining, I felt, and clean about that practical focus of chi generation work. And for a lot of reasons, I think that so the way that my class starts, that's, that's sort of where the rationale came from. But then there were lots of other things. I, I found that there were a lot of specific movements, like there's um, this exercise which is sort of that builds you up. It's, it's an exercise that my Tai Chi teacher gave me to sort of build you up to being able to practice some of the more complicated um, forms. This movement of the radius and the ulna around 
um, using the middle finger as sort of a, a, a central point, is something that I was doing in a lot of West African dances already, right? And so I was like, huh, it, it, it just felt interesting to me that there were a lot of these patterns through space that were, they were just simply the same. They were, they, um, and so I developed that sequence of movement. It came, it, it, it came in one evening in my kitchen. I was just, I just got up. I was thinking, you know what I'm saying? Like I was sort of nebulously thinking about all of these things and I just stood up and just did it. Like I would do the first couple of movements and then I would stop and then I would do the next couple and then I would do the next couple and do the next couple on into the kata, like the kata, which is that form that they dance right afterwards that goes in all the four directions. <clears throat> I did that entire thing in like four hours in my, in my apartment in Boulder one evening and I've been doing it for nine years. And I definitely have moments where I'm like, I need to do something else, this is driving me crazy. But then I learn something else. Every time I've gotten to that point where I'm like, I'm going to make up another one, it's time to stop doing this warm-up. You know, you're starting to be, you know, you're going to be like one of those crazy modern dance people that has like, you know, a codified technique. But every time I, I feel like that, my body learns something new. I learn something new doing it. And I'm like, hmm. <clears throat> so then the concentric circles that they do it in, I think, are really important for a lot of reasons. Um, I, I mean, I think that they feel each other. Uh, I think that it decentralizes me as an authority figure in the classroom. It centralizes their bodies as the focal point. I do think that the repetition of the same thing over and over again, which is something that um, I feel like I gleaned from Marshall, um, from a Marshall approach to training, was that once the body knows that it doesn't have to come and face something new, then the thing that's changing is the person. So if the movement's not changing, and if the technique to do the movement isn't changing, then what you have to be aware of changing is yourself. And, and you become more and more aware of your own anatomy, your own more subtle bodies, your energy bodies, your emotional bodies. You become aware of how they're interacting with each other. Um, you start to and I have to coach people into that, you know. I definitely like teaching in a university setting, and I also think that the form has definitely developed in that environment where I had students over long periods of time, and they were definitely coming back because it definitely pays off over time. I was teaching it at, a, at Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado, that had a very interesting BFA program for a couple of years, and they had this woman. Um, who I'm sorry, I, whose name I won't remember right now. She's a San Francisco-based woman who does ballet training, but then she also does a lot of somatic work. And she came in and had done all these sort of fine-tuned measurements of the students' bodies their first year when they started training with me. And then the students in this um, 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 program trained with me for two years, and she came back at the end of two years and did the measurements again. And there were significant shifts in... Um, the length of their their spine, I mean, significant, you know what I'm saying, like small, but there were these significant, across the board in these students, like the length of the spine, the balance in their pelvic floor. Um, th this is the only time I've ever had any, I've had any students for that length of time where 
there were these measured shifts in their in their sort of resting anatomical placement. Um, so, and it just works in terms of getting students who are mostly ballet and sort of jazz trained to train to um, to lift, trained to think of lifting. It definitely works in terms of getting them to understand sitting and dropping and understanding it as a as a as a stance as a and then understanding what I'm trying to teach as technique which is definitely um, a part of my process in learning to teach uh, an African slash martial based technique in a contemporary dance concert dance based environment it was I, ha I had to sell I had to figure out how to sell or um, explain where the technique was because if I didn't do that um, ballet trained dancers first response was I'm losing my technique in this class or they would feel like they were flopping around they would say I'm just flopping I feel like I'm just flailing I'm flopping around um, and so they really helped me you know those questions and journal entries really helped me to um, find vocabulary to describe it technically. Well, I definitely think that my, my sensibility towards music was honed in, in the West African drum, in, specifically the djembe drum orchestra. I, I played, a, I, well, I didn't play at first. I danced for a while, but then I played, I played for a while. I was a, a songba player and a, and a junjun player. And that gave me a lot of respect for what it takes to play music, especially for dancers. <clears throat> um, because, again, energetically, dancers have, uh, sometimes they're not aware of how much effect they have on the wavelength, the rhythmic, the energetic, the rhythms in the energetic wavelengths in the room. And as a drummer, when you have dancers coming at you and they're like throwing all kinds of rhythm into the space. And for me, as sort of a fledgling young drummer, I would like not be able to look at the dancers because if I looked, especially if they were still trying to find the rhythm, I wouldn't be able to stay on. It would throw me off beat. And so I, 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 I felt like in that experience, like trying to learn how to drum in a djembe orchestra in dance classes, like once they let me play in dance classes, I realized, oh, the musician is actually pulling the dancers into time. They're actually, without necessarily being on the dance floor and speaking, they are, their, their sense of what's happening, the f not, and not necessarily just the timing, but the feel of the movement, the, um, the, all the other subtle rhythms that are rippling through the body. So the really skilled djembe players who'd be able to mark a dancer and you know, talking to djembe players as they get older. And I was recently talking to a friend of mine who said, yeah, nowadays I don't even watch the feet anymore. I watch the, the way the, the, the lapa, which is the skirt that dancers wear. The, I watch the way the lapa falls and I mark that. Like that, <clears throat> I started to get a real respect for how much effect the musician was having in the space. I think I definitely had the perspective at the beginning that, well, you know, the musicians are just live accompaniment, you know, like instead of a 
DVD, you, a CD, you have a musician, and yeah, it's better. But I think that um, there I got a real appreciation. And culturally in that context, the drum is definitely seen as equal, if not before, the dance teacher. Like, like we would go out on gigs and if there wasn't enough money for everyone, you pay your drummer first. So I was coming out of that sort of cultural context when I started working with live musicians in the modern dance context. And so I sort of negotiate, just like I was negotiating this kind of like mixed world of like mixed aesthetics and mixed philosophical ideas and mixed value systems, I also feel like I negotiated and, and, and continue to negotiate with modern dance companies this sort of like, okay, like, I, in the context of what we're doing here, I, I want your role, I, I, I often try to elicit more leadership from my musician. Um, I like to, I definitely like to, re and coming from an African dance perspective, I definitely like to respond to the drummer improvisationally. I find it very difficult to come into the class with set material in terms of like phrases that I teach. I have the set warm-up phrases and the katas and these forms that I teach and I, and I know the rhythms of those and I sing them and then the musicians pick them up and we start to sort of have a conversation back and forth around these, these sort of set forms. But then when it comes down to create, to create movement in the space, I used to try to come into class with set movement and I would forget it and I would be standing in the class completely frustrated. I found that I was able to actually find flow and dance joyfully when I was improvising the phrases in the moment. And once I learned that that was my way, then I find that I'm able to have um, this conversation with the musician, you know? And so a lot of times like with, <laughs> with Raj, this is my first time really having a tabla player, which has been really interesting. Um, but he'll just play things and we'll do, you know, you'll do a phrase over and over again and he'll play things differently and he'll catch me in different places and in different ways and in surprising things and we'll just be laughing like we have this converse, we're having this conversation back and forth. And then the students become aware of that and then their awareness of what's happening in the room rises. I, yeah, I've, I feel like I've been really lucky. I've worked with some amazing musicians. Jesse Mano played for me in uh, University of Colorado for the 10 years and we collaborated on a number of pieces. I feel like I, I feel like I, I had these sort of instincts for odd meters before I met him but then you know I met the guru and he you know like taught me um, in really simple like quick ways you know in class he would be like this is where the downbeat is this is how it is I would be like I want to do a five and he'd be like well what is how, how, how about this and I'd be like well I want to and we we could just really quickly go back and forth but I feel like a lot of the instruction happens on the dance floor in the midst of dancing and yeah um, so yeah, and it, it, it shifts with it shifts with different people. I have some drummer when when I work with African drummers, they tend to be very vocal. They'll participate as teachers in the classroom. They'll stop. They'll they, they'll stop a phrase and and talk to the students about their musicality and their timing because coming from that cultural context, they feel you know empowered. Modern dance musicians are more like no, they they want me to stay in control and they, you know, they, they, they prefer to play the supportive role and to interact with the phrase musically. You know, Jesse is very effective though. He can, be, he can speak very, very effectively from his instrument and comment on the phrase and comment on the way it's being danced and take parts out and put parts back in and test their, 
test where the dancers are and how much they're really understanding of the conceptual material and um, it's cool and uh, yeah and I and and I still sort of have a you know this half dream of maybe being a musician at some point so I get to sing in class and I get to play sometimes and um, yeah that's been really cool for me in terms of teaching contemporary dance modern dance it's been a it's been a really it's been a playground and I've had really good playmates I talk a lot about about um, sex in my classes sexuality and sex in my classes um, but I talk about I, I like to talk about it from Like for instance, one of the story, one of the things we talk about a lot of is how the a female fetus in vitro has all of its eggs at four months inside of its mother's uterus, and so, and and those eggs are sort of buzzing and humming with the life force of potentially you know thousands and thousands of potential human beings, and they are it's full of, pow of actual power, like measurable electrical power you know we could take a you know a scanner and quant scientists could quantify it in some way um, and so then I and so then I, I I put a piece of information like that on the table and then I talk about things like um, how we tend to cross our legs for instance you know and the way that we will cross our legs depending on who's in the room and if we feel um, comfortable or if we feel like there might be potential threat like these the instincts that we have about protecting this place and then I talk and then I can bring in information like from martial arts where I had a kung fu teacher talk to me about this tendency especially in Western women to cross our legs at the ankles or to cross our legs you know like this and it and he said it's this it's this completely understandable defensive maneuver right but it's actually very impractical because with your your legs crossed and your pelvic floor or the you know um, sort of constricted and folded on itself you're actually in a very unbalanced position and you could be toppled over and taken advantage of physically just just because the Marshall thing really thinks about combat so if I'm sitting in this position my the potential for someone to physically come and take con physical control of my body is much greater than if I'm sitting with my legs open and myself balanced right over my center because from this position I can get myself out of the way I can I can move out of the way of an attack or I'm strong in order to be able to um, to redirect someone who comes at me and so I, I, I feel like I I feel like I'm talking a lot about about people's access to their own um, internal generators I think that it has a lot of connections to what people might consider to be spirituality but another thing that I got from my Aikido teacher was that this is not about religion it has spiritual dimensions if you want to call it spirit but it's ener it's about energy and we all will accept that everything that we know in the known universe is energy but somehow we as human beings forget that we are sources of power ourselves actual power and I think that what I'm trying to give dancers in my classes is access to their own power and then I talk a lot about about 
the time that they're put like I try to make the answers in my class aware of the time that they're putting in in the moment and aware of what other people in the society are doing at the same time I like to I like to have them be aware of what it is they're cleaning out of their own systems as they come back to class and come back to class and come back to class and how they're cleaning out the channels and the, and the connections into their own power. They're keeping themselves more balanced. They're keeping themselves as an, as an emanating, as a generator that emanates energy. They're keeping the level, the frequency, and the intensity of that energy higher than the average bear, right? And so I try to impress on them the idea that they are inherently valuable and that they are making themselves more and more valuable with every hour that they spend invested in cultivating their embodied awareness of this power. And that using it as a performer, yes, that's one very profound thing that you can do with it. But there are many, many, many things that you can do with it. That you are in, when you walk into a room of civilians, people who, who do not cultivate their energy, who spend very little time um, investing and exploring their connection to their physical body, your body is benefiting them just by being in the room with them. And it's valuable. Now, we do need to learn how to how to communicate that in the world around us. But I think that if we, if we really know and accept and believe that it's true, then the process of communicating that is just a, it's just a matter of seeking the language, you know. But I think that sometimes we're not so sure. I think that we, we have become sort of classically an oppressed class in some ways. Like we, we function like a, like a class of people that are oppressed and not quite sure of our own value. And if we're not sure about it, nobody else is, no, is definitely, not, not in the way that our culture has, is, is currently incarnating. Not, and, but, I, but I really believe that this is just an inherent truth, and maybe that's a convenient belief for myself, but I think it's an inherent truth. And I look around me, and everybody else that I know that claims to be human is still in a body. I mean, maybe in the next 40 years or so, some of us won't be in bodies anymore. But for the time being, you know, we're all, um, we're all struggling with cycles of ingestion and digestion and excretion. We're all cycling with cycles of birth and death. We're all struggling with trying to feel all of our emotions enough not for them to cause hypertension and ulcers and headaches and, and anxiety attacks and eczema and hair falling out or what have you. We're all struggling with physical existence, no matter how successful we are, no matter how much money we make, no matter how much you know, is in our 401k or whatever, everybody is really struggling with the physical condition. Everybody is. And so I feel like um, I want the students in my class to be, to feel assured that their um, presence in the society is necessary and there is no shortage of work. I think that, why did I call it? I started calling it Afro-Modern when I first started teaching at CU 10 years ago. And I think that it was because I, I, it was in West African, it was in dancing West African that I became a dancer, that I identified, that I was like, I am a dancer. Because I have a friend of mine, Michelle Ellsworth, who's a, 
she's a performance artist. I'm sorry, I'm Michelle, I'm saying it on tape. But she <laughs> continues to call herself a dancer because she became an artist as a dancer. And so she, while most of what she's doing now is creating websites and editing videos and writing scripts, she still works her way through those various media with the sensibility of a dancer and a choreographer. She's, she's editing video, but she considers what she's doing choreographic, right? Because those are where her skills came from. So I guess that's why I, I had that. And also Ron Braun was calling his class Afro-Modern at the time, <laughs> you know? But I recognize that it's not actually, um, it doesn't really embrace everything that my class, for sure, it doesn't embrace everywhere that my class is going. My class is definitely going way east um, as well. It's influenced with a lot of, by a lot of um, American social forms. Um, it's influenced by a lot of other things. But I do think that, that the African aesthetic has predominated my lens, I suppose. Um, a lot of people are now, since Brenda, using the term Africanist, which, mm, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, but I, I, I told my students to help me come up with another name. What's, what's the issue with Africanist? It just feels... Uh, it just, I feel like it's being picked up really like fast and furious. And like, like well, that's another whole department. <laughs> but I definitely feel like a lot of things in our contemporary... I, I mean, I just feel, feel like we as a culture continue to have unresolved issues about Africa. I think that we as a world culture, we have unresolved issues about what happened to Africa, what continues to happen to Africa, and what our relationship to Africa is. Did we all come from there? Are we responsible? Is that our mother? Have we been raping her for millennia? Are we letting her, like, completely what do should we feel responsible to that or not like and so i think that there's always like there's this work i th i feel like brenda dixon's work and um she's been an amazing mentor and guide and and eye opener for me also and i and i don't think this is unique to her i think that it happens over and over again like someone creates language or helps to like open a door and then people go yes Yes, you know, and, and hold on to it so tight that it somehow like calcifies. So I was in a class and I was, we were talking about something, I was sitting in on a grad seminar somewhere and we were talking about, they were talking about, um, they were talking about cage and, and improvisation and all these things. And I mentioned something about jazz improvisation. And there was this, there was this backlash kind of like, well, why does everything always have to be like, maybe this stuff just developed. Maybe they had no idea about what was happening with da, da, da. And I was like, I wasn't really saying, you know what I'm saying? Like I wasn't really saying, like the idea Africanist is linked to, the, to this idea about influence, which I think tweaks ideas about guilt. Well, did that person base what they developed on jazz music and then not give credit and I was like I really don't I'm not just talking about that I'm, I don't care I was I'm interested in possible conceptual theoretical or philosophical through lines or not perhaps 
Cage's idea about improvisation is completely diverse from what was happening in jazz at the time. Although we know that they were both happening around the same time. You know what I'm saying? That, you know, though they were in the air at around the same time. And so, so I, I was interested, while I, I, I feel like I knew more about the jazz thing than this, but I feel like the, the term, the, Af the term Africanist and the ideas that came out in that book, which was really just sort of an introduction, like digging the Africanist presence is like, hey, this is sort of part of our legacy as Americans. Maybe we should be interested in delving into it a little bit. I feel like that's what that book did. Like, maybe we should look into those hundreds of thousands of years of classical history that are the root of our American culture, right? But I feel like a lot of people just link onto that one book now. What that book was really an invitation to like Malian culture, Guinea culture, Senegalese culture, you know, um, on back into, into, into Egypt and Timbuktu and the universities that were there and, and, and which, 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 you know, like which tribes got brought over to which parts of the United States and how did they affect the music that your grandfather listened to and you know what I'm saying? Like, and how do they affect you and who you are and your sensibilities about time and space and you know what I'm saying? Like all of us are culturally, as Americans, really deeply related to African culture. Um, and so I don't have any, I think Brenda Dixon's book was incredibly important, but I, I just hope that it's seen as a doorway, not necessarily an end. And so when I hear a lot of people are using that term, like I'm an Africanist dancer, like I, was rec I recently had a conversation with a, a very well-known African dance teacher and choreographer in Chicago, and she said that someone came up to her and said, introduced themselves as an Africanist dancer, and she was sort of like, what? You, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, language, I think, is, is yeah. yeah. My poor father's heart was broken when I decided to become a dancer. He was, you know, like, he was intent on me becoming a lawyer or going into politics or something, you know? Um, but it was him. He, um, I rem my first dancing memory is my dad on his knees and us doing this, and we were dancing to Kung Fu Fighting in the living room. You know that song, Kung Fu Fighting, fast as lightning. So funny that it's a song about martial arts, right? But, um, and my dad is on his knees, and he's like, we're like going back and forth. And I just remember just like getting into such an elevated state and my uncle in the background, I just remember his voice going, that girl has rhythm. And um, yeah, that's it. <laughs> but, but I guess, I, I guess that is, I guess something that's, that's, that's really, that's important to me now is, um, is finding a way to, I don't know, I, I'm a, I'm a, it, I feel like there are two prongs to it. I think there's a part of me that really wants to give um, opportunities for the, those um, African diasporic dance forms that have fed the American dancing body 
historically so richly and deeply to give an avenue for those forms to um, propagate themselves in the institution in, in the way that modern dance gave ballet an opportunity to do so in, in the academic institutions. I think that, I think that we all, that, I think that, that, that the historical record is clear enough for us to know that, that, that our West African roots as American dancers are as profoundly effective on our contemporary dance sensibilities and technical proficiencies as our European roots. And that those two forms have been in profound conversation with each other. Um, not to say, and I get called on this a lot of times, a lot of people say, well, it's not just African and European. This is America. There's a lot of other things going on. But I would say that the African and the European in our, in our culture, because of the 400 years of slavery, lived in an intimacy that no two other groups lived together under. Other groups have come in but have maintained, maintained their own communities, had access. We could go into the whole social discussion about business and how other ethnic groups came in and so their cultural forms didn't have the, you know, I'll say opportunity. You know, the circumstances were certainly um, unfortunate and profoundly traumatic, but still, culture is culture and it kind of doesn't care. If you put people in intimate connection, there will be intimate integration and profound weaving of their cultural materials. And it happened here. And we can't deny that it has been incredibly profound, powerful, and inspiring to the world. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like American music and dance forms continue to take the world by storm. <clears throat> and so, I just think that it's time, you know. I had the opportunity to become um, under the mentor, mentor, mentorage, mentoring, tutelage, mentorship, uh, whatever, the tutelage of Rennie Harris in the last couple of years. And I really think that I, I got sort of a, a poignant perspective into the fact that there are, there are American dance forms that were created by people with names, you know, that have influenced, like, like um, you know, I will not be hired to teach anybody's history class because I cannot remember his name, but what's his name that started um, locking? Campbell? D uh, Don Campbell, thank you. I did it. Um, you know, there are, and he's just one of many. There, there, there are all these people that, that originated dance forms that have changed uh, American dance, that have, that have, that, you know, that are like iconic, who are, you know, getting sick and dying in the ghettos with no health insurance, no acknowledgement, no, no place from which to become, um, old and to become mentors of young dancers and 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 not to say that that hasn't happened anyway that the community hasn't supported and tried to support but we we I mean we're a major or we have been you know uh, um, we're a major culture we have institutions we have institutions that can preserve and protect our art forms and I don't think that and I think that 
we're grown now. Like we can we can recognize this stuff and 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 open up those institutions to help to um, provide opportunities. You know, um, I, I brought Rennie Harris in. To, he's been teaching at UCLA and he's he's has two more years at University of Colorado Boulder and and having him in the institution and, and having hip-hop dancers have access to him, I watched it, I saw it, where there were, there were hip -hop, very virtuosic b-boys and b-girls who had been dancing, you know, they were in their 20s, they didn't know their own form's history because they didn't have access to it. They didn't have access to people that, that knew what it was. They started to get more of a context for who they were and, and, and what it was they were doing and, and, and and why it was important and where it came from just in being able to sit in his history of hip-hop class and and I, and, I, and I think that those things are incredibly important but we have all these you know there are these barriers to getting it done well none of these people have degrees and and but if they had gotten a degree at the time when they were on the skills on the streets learning their skills if they had gotten a degree in the institution then they wouldn't have the skills that that you know like there's this catch-22 like what do we do to like open the door, um, th that feels important to me. It feels important um, for all of us um, and for future generations. So that was one prong. I'm sorry I'm so long-winded. But then on the other side, I feel that, I feel like there are incredible opportunities for models, for new models of how, where contemporary dance can go that are embedded in a lot of these forms that have had to survive out completely outside of the limited institutional support that dance gets in this country anyway. The forms that have had to survive on the streets for all these years have methodologies that, that can help in a lot of the questions that we're sitting around asking, you know. And a, lot of the, and a lot of the methodologies are based in where we place value, where do we think performance happens. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you're not going to be happy and feel successful unless you've performed on a stage in, and, and been reviewed by some person that has a job at a newspaper and, it's, uh, you know, and, and the stage is at an, you know, it, like, if that's your measure, then you might continually experience disappointment. Right? But if you, ha if you have a, a worldview that shifts and, and, and can connect a performance moment to an experience that you're having in an improvisational circle in the midst of, you, you know what I'm saying? That there are, there are methodologies of application of our form that are existing in a lot of different um, environments that are available to us. Their answers to a lot of our questions are right at the tips of our fingers all around us. But I think that we, we, we tend to like take a little, like we bring in hip hop teachers, you know, we bring them in, but they teach facing the mirror and they teach combinations of steps. We don't often go, wait, we want you to bring the steps in, but we also want you to bring the culture in. Like, like those, the, 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 the B-girls and the B-boys out there, they're not dancing facing forward when they really do it. Maybe when they go on So You Think You Can Dance, they all do, they put some choreography together and do it facing forward. But when they're really earning their cred on the street, they have to go into that circle. They have to go in that circle and they have to bring it under pressure and in the circle of connoisseurs who know, right? 
and they have to be able to speak in that context. There are, there are so many, there's so much information in that. There's information in terms of public debate and public discourse and how we, how we negotiate power, how we renegotiate power, how we pick a new leader. Like, there are so many, there's so much information packed into these cultural materials and cultural technologies and dance technologies that can be, um, I feel like smart people can figure out ways to integrate them into discussions of why dance is a civic activity, why dance is a political activity, how and why dance is an educational activity, how dance is a, is a way to build community, how dance is a way to resolve conflict. How, you know, the, the origination of, of hip-hop culture comes from, what's his name? Africa Bambara, getting a grant, right, going to South Africa, talking to South African elders because he was trying to figure out a way to resolve conflict in his community. And what they said is, we use dance. He said, really? Yeah, we use dance and music. When two different groups are having conflict, we create an environment when you, using dance, music, and spoken word, people are able to express the fullness of their aggression and their desire to kill each other without actually killing anyone. Oh. Interesting idea. So he goes back to the Bronx where people are killing each other on gangs and he births the, the idea of, of hip-hop. It came from, it, 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 it came out of this need to resolve social conflict. That's where, that's where it was born out of. This podcast was produced by the Bates Dance Festival out of Bates College in Lewiston, Maine. Editing was done by myself, Lindsay LaPointe. The interview was conducted by Katie Aylward and Rachel Boja. Music featured by Kudos Anikeku. For more information about Onye, visit OzuzuDances.com. If you missed your chance last summer to study with Onye, you will have another chance at the Bates Dance Festival Gibney Winter Intensive. July 6th through the 10th, 2020, at the Gibney Studio in New York City. More information can be found on our website. We hope to see you there.